0: It was a spring day in 1535, and William Tyndale was out for a walk near his home in the city of Antwerp, Belgium, when authorities seized him and threw him in prison. He was held there until the following year, 1536, when he was tried as a heretic, and he was condemned and sentenced to be strangled and then burned. Now, Tyndale wasn't a seasoned criminal. Uh, He wasn't the kind of guy you expect to find in a prison cell, right? Uh, He actually spoke seven languages. Anybody here speak seven languages? No hands. All right. Uh, He could read the Bible in the original Greek and Hebrew uh, fluently, so much that he could translate. Uh, He was an ordained clergyman, and he could have easily made a decent career for himself, rising up through the ranks. He was a professor at Cambridge. Uh, He was clearly cut out to be a bishop, right? Um, That kind of guy. But he doesn't end up there. He ends up in a prison cell. What was his crime? Well, he had this ridiculous fixation. Uh, He had this idea that the scriptures should be, I know, don't laugh with me, uh, in the hands of the common people. Um, All these uneducated farmers, women, children, He thought that all of those people should have the full copy of the Holy Scriptures. Um, Think about how dangerous that idea is, um, if everyone could have access to the source. Um, Clearly, and for good reason, of course, uh, the authorities were rather concerned. And his idea was first rejected by the English church. He wanted to take all of the, go back to the original Greek and the original Hebrew, and make a translation into plain English, something that uh, the common speak, which sounds something like the King James Bible does today, right? Um, I think nowadays it would be like text message lingo or something like that, just incomplete fragments. But, but that's, yeah, emo- it would be emo- the emoji translation, right? Um, but Tyndale wanted to translate the scriptures into the common speak of the everyday people, so that they could read it for themselves, and the English Church said no. That's that's succeeding, giving too much power to the lay people, and so Tyndale did the only morally acceptable thing I think to do in that situation, and that is that he moved over to the continent of Europe, um, went into hiding, and did it anyways, and then he proceeded to smuggle copies of his English translation of the Bible back into England. That was his crime. And uh, the legend has it that as he uh, as the flames were lit around him, he cried out, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Now, it's hard for, to- for people in our time to make sense of someone like William Tyndale. It seems like something so distant from our reality that someone would give their life uh, to ensure that people have access to this book. Because let's face it, like, these books are everywhere, right? Um, we have like 15,000 different translations. That I, couldn't, I gave up counting Bible apps uh, that you can get through the app store last night. There, there are at least 100 different ones. Um, how many greeting cards are there at Target or Walmart that have Bible verses decontextualized painted across them? I mean, in a sense, we're inundated with Scripture everywhere we go, and it's passe. It's like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. How many times have we heard that over and over and over again that no one thinks about it? It's like it's just incorporated into our reality and we're, as we've said before, inoculated against it. But these are words that William Tyndale was willing to go to the stake over. And so this is the question I want to linger over this morning. What was so precious about this book that someone would be willing to die for it? And also, what was so threatening about this book that someone would be willing to kill to suppress it? Let's let that question linger in the background as we make our way through 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, We're in a series called Building a Church That Serves, and we're in order to do that, we're looking at the advice that Paul, an older pastor, is giving to a younger pastor, his mentee named Timothy. And this morning, we're talking about scripture, the Bible. Um, And remember, as Paul's writing to Timothy, this is a time of immense persecution. Everything is going wrong for Paul and for Timothy in the church. Um, Paul has seen intense trials Uh, He's been stoned and left for dead. He's been thrown out of cities repeatedly. He has enemies. There are people who have infiltrated the church and are trying to twist the truth and offer little half-truths that sound a little bit more appealing than the real thing and throw people off. It seems that there's resistance from every side, and we get the sense as we read through the letter that Timothy is a little bit discouraged and afraid. I'm wondering if you've ever felt a little bit discouraged and afraid as a Christian before. Maybe it was a coworker who made you feel like you were intellectually inferior. Maybe it was family members and you weren't sure how they were going to accept the the news of your newfound faith. It's a world that even today we encounter hostility. And Paul is saying... Timothy, if you want to be able to stand up in the middle of resistance, what you need is to do, to do is to be continuing on in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed. In other words, you need to be rooted in the Word of God. You need to be rooted in the Scriptures. So, as we wind our text our way through this text this morning, I want to explore two questions. One: What are the Scriptures? what is this book? And second, what do they do? When you read, what what does scripture do? That's a strange question to ask of a book, is it not? But this isn't any ordinary book. So first, what are the scriptures? Open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to start by unpacking a little phrase that we find in the middle of our passage. Verse 15. Paul says, Timothy, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. The sacred writings. This is, He's referring, of course, to... This collection of historical narratives and poetry and prophecies and wisdom literature and all kinds of other stuff that you find in the first thirty-nine books of your Bible, called the. All right, good job. Uh, the old. Thank you, thank you, Rector. I'm... You guys can be glad he knows it. Uh... <laughs> it's like I know the answer. Uh, that's right. Uh, the the Old Testament, uh, or the Hebrew Bible, um, as they, as they knew it before then. Uh, the Jews in, before Jesus didn't call this the Old Testament, right? Uh, they knew it as just the scriptures or the Hebrew Bible. Um, these were 39 books in all written by at least, at very minimum, 35 different authors over the course of over a thousand years. So, I've heard people say before, well, the Bible, you know, there were some people that got in a room and just kind of cooked this story up. It sounded really good. That can't happen because those 35 people lived over the course of a thousand years. You can't, (laughs) they don't just make that up, but rather this is a record of God's faithful action time and time and time again, working with his people in this delicate dance through history. They're sacred writings. And it's not just a random collection of wise stuff either. Uh, it's not a magical arrangement of words, like an incantation or something. Has anyone ever heard of the book The Bible Code? This came out in the 90s, and the idea was that if you looked at like every 350th Hebrew writ letter it would uh, throughout the Torah, that it would predict COVID-19 or something like that. Um, and that what you needed to do was be able to find like, the magical way that it all lined up. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous. The Bible does not work that way. There's lots of patterns and sequences, but it's not the Bible code, right? Um, rather, this library of scripture, as it's called, uh, these 39 books of historical narrative and poetry and all kinds of other literature work together to tell a unified story about human reality and human history. Let me say that again. They work together to tell a unified story about human reality and human history. And this is a unified story that is at odds with anything else that's ever been told. Right? Um, Other accounts, like circulating at the time of Paul and Timothy, might have been like uh, Democritus. Uh, Democritus had a theory that reality was essentially just these little building blocks that he called atoms um, and the atoms are, the universe is a closed system and the atoms are bouncing off one another and they've been set in motion in such a way that everything that will ever happen is already predetermined. Right? Once you tip the slinky going down the stairs, it's just going to keep going and going and going. No human or intelligent intervention is needed. So Democritus said all of human history is basically just like a slinky falling down, a sta- down the stairs. It's all inevitable, and there's no real meaning to anything. He's one of the first atheist philosophers. Or, the Greeks, uh, and many other cultures of the time, saw the core of reality as being a bunch of vengeful gods. Vengeful deities that were primarily self-interested. And warring with one another... And seeking to exploit humanity for their own gain. But this unified narrative of the Old Testament, these 39 books tell a different story. That there is a good, infinitely wise, infinitely loving personality that that didn't struggle to create everything, but rather breathed out and spoke reality into existence. And reality proceeds according to his good pleasure, according to a purpose. Now, it's been broken. It's been distorted, has it not? Can I hear an amen? (laughs) Right? But it's being redeemed. This infinitely wise, infinitely good God is redeeming things. And you see this in book after book of the Old Testament, from the Psalms to the book of Ruth to the Prophets. Uh, all of this diverse literature is testifying to the corruption of man and the inherent goodness of God, who works in, with, and under it. So, Paul says, these are not just any writings. These are sacred writings. And from childhood, Timothy, you've been acquainted with these sacred writings. You've been steeped in this alternative account of reality, so that when you hear all of the other things that are being offered in the world— you have truth to stand on. This is why we raise our kids in the church. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to tell my kids you must believe something. But they're going to grow up and they're going to know the scriptures. They're going to know that reality is not just what Instagram dictates to them or whatever any given teacher in their school is going to tell them. But there is another way. There's another account. There's more to reality than meets the eye. And it's not just any account of reality, though. Paul says it's actually God's own account. It's God's own self-disclosure. Look at verse 16. This is one of the most famous verses that the Bible has to say about the Bible. All scripture is breathed out by God. Who's ever heard people say the scriptures are inspired. You ever heard that word, inspired? Raise a raise hands. Yeah, good, okay. Um, that comes from this verse, right? And when we hear the word inspired, oftentimes we can think of that in a really shallow sense. Like, wow, that poem was inspired. And what are they saying there? Saying that the human author there really had, uh, they keyed into something that sounds kind of eternal, that sounds kind of good. That was a great poem is what they mean. That's not what Paul is saying here. Um, that is far too weak of a word. The word that Paul uses is theonustos. Say that with me. Theonoustos. Uh, a lot of scholars think that Paul just took two different words and just jammed them together because this is the only time in all of the scriptures where we hear this word. Theonustos. So theos means God and neustos or coming from the root word numa means spirit or breath. So literally, coming from the spirit of God or the breath of God, the idea that is that God produced this thing. It comes out and proceeds from him. Just like we confess in the creed, the spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Scripture comes from the Holy Spirit who is breathed out. So, we have this combination of the two words, theos and numa spirit. So, on one level, we all know the scriptures are the product of human authors who sat down and tried their best to write intelligible things. Right? Nobody walked into a cave and found the scriptures written on a golden tablet. Word for word. That's what Islam says of the Quran. Right? That's not how it worked. Um, you have... At least at least 35 different human authors through over over the course of at least a thousand years sitting down and addressing real life situations. And in with and underneath this, God uses these people to make his own self-disclosure, to speak kindly, truthfully, and authoritatively. This is God's self-disclosure. Now, quick side note. This passage raises a lot of questions because uh, Paul is clearly here talking about only the Old Testament. Um, How do I know that? (laughs) Because the New Testament doesn't exist yet. (laughs) There is no New Testament. Uh, This was likely written before the Gospels even came into being right? Uh, So, Paul's talking about, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. He means all Old Testament is breathed out by God. So, in our day, right, we could say, okay, all Old Testament scriptures are inspired. They're breathed out by God, and the New Testament's kind of cool, too, but we're not really sure what to make of it, right? No, that would be a fireable sermon, right? I think I can see at least four reasons why everything Paul says here about the Old Testament applies to the New Testament as well. Four reasons. First, uh, Jesus saw his own teaching to be equal in authority to the Old Testament. If you read Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus is repeating, repeatedly saying, you have heard that it was said in the scriptures, this, 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 but I say to you, and I'll give you the true interpretation. Um, Jesus saw his authority as being on par as, with the Old Testament. Two, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit, remember this is the same Holy Spirit who inspired Moses and the law and the prophets, this same Holy Spirit would come and, uh, and guide his apprentices, the apostles, into all truth. This is John sixteen thirteen. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. That's what Jesus says. Reason three, Paul believed that his own teaching had God-given authority. This is 1 Corinthians 2.13. Paul says this to the Corinthians. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. So Paul knew... That as he's teaching his gospel, he is teaching, he's being led along by the Spirit. And then four, the Bible actually, the New Testament calls other parts of the New Testament Scripture. So 2 Peter 3:16, we just studied this a couple months ago, I think. Um, Peter says this: that some people are twisting Paul's words. Peter says Paul is hard to understand, right? But some people are twisting his words. As they do the other scriptures. What's the clear implication there? That Paul's words are scripture. So it's no wonder that from the very beginning, the early church recognized the 27 books of the New Testament, these historical uh, biographies and letters and apocalyptic literature as being of equal authority as the Old Testament equally God-breathed. So in our passage today, Paul has specifically in mind the Old Testament, but when we read this, we need to think, okay, Old and New Testaments together. Uh, Not one without the other. Both must be there. So the Bible, Old and New Testament, is this library of diverse writings by different authors that together tell this unified story about who God is and what he's done. And it's not just any story. It's God breathed. It's it's God's self disclosure. And isn't that a beautiful thing? That God, ultimate reality, cares enough to reveal himself to you. He's not standoffish, he wants to be known. He wants you to know him. That's remarkable. Secondly, what do the scriptures do? Look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15. Paul says, Timothy, from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's a key phrase. Uh, When Jenna and I were in seminary together, she took this class, and at one point in the class... The different uh, folks, uh, everyone had the chance to kind of share their story a little bit. And this one guy uh, stood up and shared his story. He said he grew up in a marginally Jewish household. And he decided as a teenager that he was going to take his faith a little bit more seriously. So he started at the very beginning, Genesis 1, and he read through all of the Hebrew scriptures. And he got all the way to, and he really enjoyed them, but he got all the way to the end and he said... Is that it? Is that all there is? And so then he heard about then he read the New Testament and he went, "Oh, that's a, that's it. That's where it's going." Um I think that the Old Testament is designed, it's almost asking this question, it's designed with this inconsolable longing for Christ in a thousand different ways. It, when you read the Hebrew scriptures, they make you wise for salvation because you realize that you are sinful, that the world is messed up, and that something's got to give. Something's got to be resolved. And here and there throughout the Old Testament, you know, Isaiah 53, uh, Isaiah 40, different points in the Pentateuch, uh, you see these glimpses of someone who's going to come and fulfill all of the roles that are needed to set things right. So by the time you get to the end, you're longing for something. And then you read the New Testament. And it, it's like when a, someone meets their, the person who's going to be their spouse and they say, where have you been all your life? I feel like I've always known you but now here you are. It's that same thing. We're set up, and then we see Jesus, and we know him. And we see that he's good and kind. This is what you discover when you actually dig into the Bible. You discover the person of Jesus Christ. That that alone makes this worth dying for. Um, So another way of saying this is that the scriptures teach us the gospel. In the words of Tim Keller, the gospel says you're more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. Two, it's not only that, but the scriptures also make you complete and equipped. Look at verse 16 with me. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, And for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So teaching, it fills us up. It shows us the way that we should go. Reproof, when we're turning the wrong way, there are resources there to turn us back to the right way. Correction, to show us the way that is good. And then training in righteousness, bolstering you up and showing you how to live right uh, in in the christian world we call that sanctification sanctification growing more and more to be like christ scripture is profitable for sanctification um, there's a lot of things the bible doesn't talk about uh, it doesn't talk about other planets in our galaxy and whether there's life on them doesn't answer that question It doesn't tell us whether the dinosaurs have feathers. This is a question that's been plaguing my family lately. Um, Half of Sam's dinosaur books have the dinosaurs have feathers, and then the other half, there's no feathers. Do they have feathers or not? Um, I think some did and some didn't, as a side note. That's I, not the Lord. Um, but, um, But the Bible doesn't tell us. But it does tell us everything we need to be saved and everything we need to do what God has called us to do. So if we want to be a community together that serves, um, that is a functional, healthy church, right, full of mutual submission and service, where every member is invited to pour out their life, receive the service of others, and offer what God has gifted them with, then we need the scriptures. That's the foundation we need to be built upon. Now, William Tyndale was willing to go to his death on account of this book, uh, not just because it could build a good church, but because in his words, it was the word of thy soul's health. It was the word of thy soul's health. So I want to close with a quick word to the spiritually sickly among us. Which, in February, that probably means most of us. Uh, The fearful, the jaded, the haven't had a good prayer time in years, the skeptical, struggling with secret addictions, barely hanging on, the grieving, the weighed down with sins and shame and inadequacy. How is this good news? I've always heard it growing up. Basically, the the only good news of Scripture is you need to read your Bible more. (laughs) Which, when I phrase it like that, is merely what? A law. (laughs) Another law. And a reminder of all the ways that I've failed. But this is the word of your soul's health. Um... This book book is proof that salvation doesn't come from any resource that you are able to muster up. That vision is something that is utterly contrary to everything that the scriptures teach. Um, Your sanctification, your growing in Christ, doesn't come from anything inside of you. It comes from a savior who came to you, who is all about disclosing his own self who came and died and gave his own very life so that you could have his health. So I guess my plea to you is to cling to the word of your soul's health this morning. Um, There's no more healing voice than the very voice of God. He wants to be heard. He wants to communicate with you. And he will stop stop at nothing to have you. Amen.